Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. If you're a broker or anybody out there that knows of a class B industrial building for sale, we wanna hear from you. Our criteria is that we hope that it's between 10 and $75 million in total purchase price. Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including an additional bonus, the ability to co-invest, a piece of the upside, and exclusive partner trips. Last year, we went to Lajitas and we went to Las Vegas, and it was a lot of fun, and we'd love to see you there this year. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Hey guys, it's Chris. Hope uh, everyone had a great Christmas break. I'm recording this today on December 27th, probably not getting published till sometime in middle of January. So anything I say today, I guess it's subject to change. The world is moving quick. But today I've decided to just kind of do a rant on just kind of some things that I'm reading and thinking about in real estate you know, always fact check these things. A lot of these are coming from, you know, the major companies' data reports that they pull out, things that I read online. This is not a prediction of the future by any means. It's just what's going on today and you can make of it what you will. I'll obviously throw in some opinions, maybe some hot ones, but I'll stick to really kind of some big things going on in the capital markets, obviously industrial I'll touch on office a little bit as we bought a little bit of office over the last year, but primarily a lot of capital markets and a lot of industrial and just kind of things to think about as we enter into 2022. So I'll kind of start with industrial. That is the bread and butter of what has been the backbone at Fort for the last five years. It's where I spend, you know, the majority of my time thinking you know, I'm some of this is redundant to things I've said in the past, but a lot of it is redundant because it's the fundamentals and it's the things that I'm interested in knowing about when continuing to make the decision to invest in industrial. And, you know, there's there's a lot of popularity in industrial. It's a hot word, certainly very different from where it was five years ago when we started. Uh, can't even imagine what it's like for the people that have been in this for for decades. But you know, I really think it is different this time, which can be the fatal last words. But the way the world is reorienting itself, the way that consumers are shopping, the way that businesses are thinking, you know, because of COVID, but but also not because of COVID, things are different. And, you know, I said this at Reconvene earlier, it's gotten a little bit of traction on the internet, but, you know, real estate ultimately is a byproduct of what is going on in the world and what are humans doing and what are they up to. And so the way that we're transacting, the way that we're running businesses, the way that we're buying online, all of that trickles down to a need for an industrial building. You know, similarly, as long as people like being by the beach and love being in the water, 
you know, coastal cities will have a great real estate market. But if for some reason being on the ocean is no longer attractive, you know, that could be tough. Same thing. If people stop buying online and just go back to brick and mortar, you know, that could be terrible. So again, real estate is kind of a byproduct of what's going on with people. And there's been a dramatic shift in just a lot of the way that we do things. And it, you know, just so happens that a lot of those dramatic shifts impact industrial. So, you know, the the things that I have been talking about for a long time, I'll kind of go through the list and kind of, you know, look at have those fundamentals changed? Are they increasing? Are they decreasing? So location premium, we're buying a lot of class B industrial right now. One of the things that denominates Class B industrial, it's it's the thing, is when it was built. So a lot of this stuff was built in the 60s to call it the 90s, which by way of when it was built, you know, at the time might have been on the quote unquote outskirts of town. But 50 years later, 60 years later, those are very infill locations. They have mature rooftops around them. They have mature infrastructure around them. They have mature, you know, everything around it's really mature. And so I look at is the premium of being infill more today or less today? It's more. And kind of one statistic I'll give you, uh, which was on the Sean Dalfin podcast uh, episode I did, if you haven't listened to it, highly recommend. Sean's been incredibly successful in industrial. But he said something to the degree of for a lot of the companies that are occupying these buildings, their supply chains are made up of you know, 15 to 25% of the overall cost is in GNA, SGNA. 50 to 60% of that cost is the last mile cost, the cost to actually get the product to the consumer. And then three to 6% of the overall supply chain cost is the rent. And so when you think about the premium to be closer to the customer, these companies that are raising billions of dollars, whether they're VC backed companies, e commerce companies, you name it, they are solving for how to get that 50 to 60% last mile cost down. They're not solving for how do we keep our rent down. It's such an overall small portion of the overall um, puzzle that they're focused on other things. And so the closer they can get to the customer, the more they can decrease that cost, the better. And if rent goes up because of it, it overall, it's still a much bigger net benefit to these tenants that are leasing this stuff. So there's still a premium on location, a diminishing portion of the industrial stock. I've talked about this a lot. In a lot of these major markets that you go to, think of big cities that have these had these old industrial parks. And again, I can speak to two in DFW. If you're not familiar with DFW, you know, you can look these up. But a lot of the mixed-use urban, you know, kind of redevelopments or things that are torn down to build office or multi or hotels, a lot of that's happening in old industrial buildings or old industrial parks. You know, uptown, one of the uptown in Dallas, one of the most prolific kind of revitalizations of a district, maybe in the country, was an old industrial park. You're seeing it now. To the west, the design district in Dallas, an old industrial park. Buildings are either being torn down or they're being converted to restaurants or kind of flex retail or entertainment. So what you're seeing in the Class B industrial stock is what we think is actually a depleting supply class. These buildings are either being torn down or repositioned to higher and better use. And one statistic I found, you know, really interesting was since 2007, there's been 
3 billion square feet of industrial added throughout the U.S., and that's accelerating at a high rate. But less than 3% of that new stock is actually these kind of last mile multi-tenant, what would be competitive to a class B type property. And again, going back to a lot of what I've talked about, that's because it's hard to find land. It's hard to find you know, land that one can support the development, but more importantly, at a cost that's achievable for a development like this. The construction costs are, are too large. You're fighting city governments that would prefer to not see industrial buildings going in the core of their cities. So you have all these forces against it. And so, again, while there's been a little bit built, less than 3% across the whole country, you know, we estimate that 1% to 2% a year of the industrial stock, the Class B industrial stock in Texas, might be being taken out of the grid, either because it's being repositioned for a higher and better use or it's being torn down altogether. So then you go to accelerated rent growth and increasing tenant demand, which obviously accelerates uh, rent growth. You have this old world tenant. We call it old world, but these are the tenants that have been around forever. And then you have this emergence of this new e-commerce-based tenant. And one fascinating you know, piece of data is only 17% of things b- of bought in America right now are happening online. 83% is still brick and mortar retail. So we have a long way to go. I know it feels like everything is online these days, but it's still kind of the early innings. And so when you think of the emergence of this new tenant class and then the emergence of the old world tenant class coming in, what you're finding is higher tenant demand than ever before. Some of those tenants with a lot less price sensitivity to rent. And you have a depleting supply class and that supply class also happens to be closest to the customer. So you start get this perfect storm of this accelerated rent, which is, again, driven by higher demand because of more tenants and lower supply. The supply is not keeping up. I mean, the growth at which online alone is growing is, an, is on an exponential curve. It's growing much quicker. But in development and, and supply, it's growing linearly, if at all. Again, with what we're doing, we think it's negative. But if you just thought, okay, the adoption at which people can buy online happens almost instantaneously. And for anybody listening that's in real estate or in development or is building anything right now, it's easy to agree that it's harder to build anything right now than it ever has before. Permits take longer. Construction costs are going nuts. Labor supply is low. You know, approvals at the city take two, three, four times as long. And so we're in a world where it's actually getting harder to build things, yet the demand for those products being built is growing exponentially. And so that you know only leads to one thing, which is increased pressure on rents. And that ultimately is good if you're a holder of industrial assets. Are CapEx requirements and operating expenses changing? I've been very vocal that one of the reasons I love this Class B industrial asset class is CapEx is very predictable. You know, your big items, your foundation, your HVACs, your roof, those are very easy to understand when you're going in to buy a building. You, you understand the, the, the life of those parts of the structure, the current condition of them, what needs to be done. And then from a tenant perspective, you know, my joke has been that the CEO of a, of a, of a business in one of these buildings doesn't need a platinum toilet. You know, the demands by the tenant are continuing to be very basic paint, carpet, lighting, you know, very basic functions to get a small office and a warehouse open. So, you know, I would ask myself, 
you know, has the thesis changed at all? No. CapEx requirements and, and operating expenses continue to be super predictable and super low when you think about them in comparison to other asset classes. Again, you know, this this is something that I guess is is not really something that I, I double check, but is owning multiple tenants better than having one tenant? I don't know if the answer is better or not, but there is less risk when you have multiple tenants that have different lease start dates and end dates, and you're never really fully vacant or fully occupied. So, you know, that continues to remain intact. And there is there continue to be portfolio premiums? Yes. We, we are fortunate to be a kind of decentralized ownership group. So 75% of the buildings that we buy are either owned privately or by users. So it's a very scattered ownership base, often unsophisticated. And there's a huge premium in being able to buy from these folks portfolios and asset um, asset groups large enough that you could sell to a bigger institution that's willing to you know, pay up. And they're willing to pay up because they have better economies of scale, cheaper cost of capital, and different return thresholds that their that their investors um, require. And so, all of those things still stay intact. And then you really take in some of the things that are happening today that even haven't happened, that weren't happening pre-COVID, but are now. You know, one of the things that that has just been on my mind like crazy is this new term, just in case inventory. And what I mean by that is. You know, for a long, as long as we can remember in America, we have been running off of a just in time inventory system, which requires businesses to lease enough warehouse to hold, call it 30 to 60 days of inventory max. And again, before COVID and before supply chains were disrupted, it worked and it worked very well. Well, now what you're hearing is this just in case inventory method, which is businesses going, look, we, we are not going to take the risk that we're going to be out of inventory. And so the same businesses are leasing enough warehouse space now to hold 120 up to 180 days of inventory. So you have, it's not even more tenants entering the market. It's the same tenants leasing two to three times the amount of space that they were leaving before because they're not going to take the risk that they don't have inventory. That is huge. So again, another reason why there's pressure on rents going up and why vacancy continues to head towards zero is this kind of just in just in case inventory system. You know, things again, and these I've been in lots of different markets lately, been out in anywhere from the West Coast to the East Coast, have been to Miami, DFW, we're looking at Nashville, we've been here in Atlanta. Industrial prices are up three to four X over the last 24 months, and some markets even higher than that. And again, not that, you know, industrial is safe, safer than any other asset class, but construction costs and a time to get these buildings, like I said earlier, is continuing to go up. It is drastically more expensive to build industrial right now than it's ever been before. And so that bodes well, you know, if you were trying to build a competing multi-tenant building to the existing supply stock. And so as construction costs continue to rise, you're going to see less supply coming on. Generally speaking, again, rents are, are everything's matching up right now. So you're continuing to see this, this huge drive. But ultimately, if you're in assets and you're buying well below replacement costs, which continues to move by the day, again, it makes me really happy about the things that we're buying. And, you know, I'll get in, I don't have to go too much into Texas. I did an episode, you know, probably 10 or 15 episodes ago on why to buy in Texas. 
if you want to hear more on Texas, go listen to that episode. But at a high level, we're a very friendly place to do business. We have corporations and businesses moving here by the droves. We have the largest oil industry in America here. You know, we have uh, border trade. We now have we have Gulf and we have the ports coming in. By the way, Houston's investing billions of dollars to open up our port even more and make it competitive with other ports around the country. There's just a lot of things going for Texas. And so, again, if, if you're familiar with Fort, we buy Class B Industrial and we buy it in Texas. And, you know, it's, it's been two things that have married up by really well. So some other things on industrial that are interesting. Transaction volume in 2021 is up 38% year over year. So we, we America did about $84 billion through Q3. Q4 is actually supposed to be one of the largest quarters ever. So we'll see what shakes out there. And Q3 year over year based 20 against 2020 was up 150%. So the transaction velocity in industrials picking up. I'll talk about it more in a little bit. The capital markets for industrial are hotter than ever, both on the equity and the debt terms. And so there's just a perfect storm going on in industrial right now. I, I, again, I'm not making a prediction on what that means for tomorrow, but there's just a lot of fundamental things that when I look and I talk about and I talk about and I go through all the things I just talked about and said, you know, are any of those getting weaker? They, they all seem to be getting stronger. Again, not every fundamental has to work for the perfect storm, but all these fundamentals I've been talking about for five years continue to get stronger. And besides some macro event that just affects the entire world, it's hard to see where any one of those um, anytime soon is going to slow down. Is e-commerce going to slow down? No, we're at 17% and we're expected to go to 34% over the next five years. Could be even faster. You know, will they be able to build more of this infill? Probably not. And it, the speed's needed? Probably not. Will this stuff continue to get torn down for higher and better use? You know, probably. Will the last mile location matter more and more, or less and less? Well, that that's directly correlated to, you know, kind of the e-commerce thesis. So if you believe the e-commerce thesis, then you believe that location premium is going to matter. You know, that again, are, are more over time, yes, this will be more institutionalized and professionally owned, but with 75% still owned by users and private, um, you know, groups, there's still a long way to go. And uh, on CapEx and, and operating expenses, you know, is there anything on the horizon that's changing there? Right now, I see nothing. There's nothing that shows me that the CEO is going to start asking for a platinum toilet or that the major CapEx budget line items are going to change. Again, we'll be keeping an eye on it because the world changes and, and you never know. You know, hitting on office just a little bit. And again, everything I'm talking about, there's no you know, perfect order or rank of importance. I'm just going through a list of notes that I've kind of put together. You know, transaction velocity for office, this is across the country, is up 49% in 2021, over 2020, uh, at $82 billion through Q3. And Q3 year-over-year growth is up 163%. You know, I've been vocal about the office being really important. I almost got canceled on Twitter for saying that. Nothing that I'm saying today is politically driven. This is me talking to people. This is me observing data. This is me, you know, again, just seeing what's happening in the real world and not paying attention to headlines. You know, I think one thing that that is is starting to become you know, understood more and more is there, we are certainly going to be in a hybrid 
uh, work from home environment, meaning, you know, 100%, I believe that people should be able to work from home periodically. Uh, 100% do I believe that remote, which by the way, to define remote often means in an office, just not at the home office, but there, but the world has shifted and there is a hundred, Fort Capital employees enjoy hybrid work schedules from here and there. But the, the thing that I'm um, committed to is that the office environment for the industry we're in and for a lot of industries remains at the, the office environment is at the central point of it all. And, and a lot of that's driven by what I think is starting to become discovered is that innovation and productivity are quantifiably higher when work is performed on site. You know, again, the data would, would tell you this, this isn't me making this up, but the largest group leasing office throughout COVID is the mega cap tech firms. They're often in the media presented as the ones that have gone fully remote, but nobody has leased more office than Facebook, Twitter, Google, Microsoft, uh, Amazon. You go across the country and look at the mega tech companies and they're all leasing office like crazy. Are they going to have remote? Sure. Are they going to have hybrid? Sure. But for the most creative businesses in the world, they are starting to realize that the, the products that are going to shape the future and invent the future, they are best um, developed and kept on, on schedule when the, when, they, when the group is able to be together in person. And so far, there's been really nothing that has changed that. And again, if you just go to the data of the most innovative companies in the world, they're all leasing a ton of office. Sunbelt markets are surpassing pre-pandemic leasing levels. Gateways are continuing to recover slowly. In my honest opinion, we're playing a big game of chicken right now. You have all these institutions that continue to delay and delay and delay, and they're all kind of watching each other. In my opinion, starting in 2022, maybe this is the one prediction I'll make on this episode, is as soon as you know, Bank of America decides to, you know, go back to the office or one of the large banks in any one category, you are going to see all of them follow suit. I think we're in a big game of chicken right now. Everybody has plans to go back. They're not delaying it for any other reason than what I believe is a big game of chicken and the verdict will be out. We'll see. You're talking, I'm hearing from a lot of companies, not in the media, but I'm talking to them one-on-one -on -one, and they are dying to get back. But again, their companies are either not able to do it. There's a new variant that comes out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But everybody has a plan to come back. Again, in the markets we're in, we're seeing leasing activity, not from the big majors, but from the you know, smaller to mid-sized companies. Leasing velocity is picking up like crazy. Most companies in the Sun Belt are all, you know, they're they're either back in the office or they have they have a plan. It's it's the major gateway markets, the more dense markets where a lot of the immediate attention is focused on. But again, when I'm looking at the companies that have leases signed, when I'm talking to the brokers, it looks like office, you know, could make a huge recovery in 2022. We'll see. Again, not making predictions. I'm just going on data that's leading me to think that. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. 
when we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And and when we when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E, junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. All right, just uh, some more um, some more kind of things that, that stood out to me, you know, just going on in real estate in general, make of it what you want. You know, CRE, commercial real estate is in favor there's no doubt about that. And I'll back that up with some, you know, data points that really kind of struck me. Blackstone right now is the largest uh, buyer and largest seller in the US. They've purchased almost 15 billion already in 2021. Uh, they've sold a little over five. KKR is the second largest buyer. And I, well, what I thought was interesting is that Blackstone is more than double though what KKR is. Interesting data on who who third place is. It's actually Blackstone's B REIT, uh, which is their more their retail um, REIT that they've created, and they're the largest raiser of capital right now in the entire market. Dry powder in the in the U.S. right now is at two hundred and thirty four billion, which has been primarily slated for opportunistic and value add strategies, open and close ended funds, asset uh, under management is up 180% since 2007, almost a trillion dollars of AUM in these open and closed funds. The mega funds are getting bigger. Blackstone has raised $51.5 billion since 2015. Brookfield is second at $29.1 billion, and Starwood is third at $20 billion. This is one thing that is fascinating to me. So allocations from the pensions and institutions continue to grow. So 15 years ago, all of these big institutions, pensions, whatever you want to call them, were allocating anywhere around 5 to 6% of their overall you know, endowments, you know, total pools of capital to real estate. Now we are closer to 11%. So we've doubled. And that is now going to head to the mid-teens. 2005, to be specific, was 5.2%. And now it is 10.9%. So this is the average amount of money being allocated by these pensions and institutions and endowments. The largest, here, here's a cool statistic, the largest pension in the U.S. is CalPERS at $384 billion, and they currently allocate 13% of their overall pension to real estate. Again, that's going to grow a little, but here's what was really interesting. And this is going to talk about you know foreign capital flows into the U.S. So before I say the statistic, I'll back it. I'll start it by saying, you know, one of the big investment themes right now, if you're international, is getting dollars into U.S. real estate. It's seen as a safe haven, and so you'll see a lot more of that. And so this, the, you know, on the backs of that, the largest pension in the world is Japan Post at 2.7 trillion. So again, largest in the US is CalPERS at 384 billion. Largest in the world is 2.7 trillion, almost nine times uh, as large as our largest pension. 
they currently only allocate of that 2.7 trillion, one and a half percent of that to real estate, yet are going to uh, head in a path that's similar to what's happening in the US. But if you think, even if they just went to 3%, that is hundreds of billions of dollars now back in the market. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with these large pensions around the world that, that often are much larger than what we see in the US because there's so many in the US. So and a lot of that money will be headed to the US. More than two-thirds of family offices were established af- in, in America were established after the year 2000. And there's an aggregate wealth of billionaires at about $10.2 trillion. They collectively are making their largest allocations to real estate going forward. So again, another source of capital inflows. This was interesting. Non-listed REIT fundraising is up almost 500% year over year in September alone. Last September, non-REIT non-listed REITs raised 606 million. This September, they rented, they they raised 3.3 billion. This is one of the largest groups of capital being raised are these non-listed REITs. And there's really no end in sight. It's growing um, almost exponentially right now. And again, this is kind of the, the democratization of capital. These are the folks that never had a way into real estate now, because of technology and transparency, they're now able to get into the two real estate that they never had before. And that's why you see the companies like BREIT and now KKR has KREIT and Starwood has SREIT. These are kind of non-listed REITs that are raising capital. It's the fastest growing kind of capital raising platform in the world. And it's really not stopping. And that's because trillions of dollars of what you might call retail money or money that's never been able to get in is now getting in and it's getting in quickly. So all that paints a picture that there are you know record amounts of equity and liquidity in the market. Again, do with that what you want, but I just think it's interesting. And when you when you look back at you know 07, 08, you know, we're we're very much we have a lot more capital, a lot more dry powder on the sidelines today than we ever did before. On the debt side, originations by property type, industrial is up 172% year over year. Office is up 22% year over year. Insurance companies seem to be the most aggressive lenders, currently with 48% origination increase year over year from 2021 to 2020. And you can compare that to agencies that are actually down 25% year over year. So it looks like you know insurance companies right now are, you know, they're not the largest lenders. They're just increasing their originations faster than any other group. And that those groups also include, you know, regional, national banks and things of that nature. You know, again, overseas capital continues to see the U.S. as a safe haven. Expect a lot of capital inflows coming from, you know, foreign governments and foreign pensions. You know, as the as the as the public markets continue to stay kind of volatile, that naturally drives people into private equity or private investments. Again, that's another um, thumbs up for real estate, for for properties that are, call it, in favor. And, and that's really changing pretty rapidly. I mean, as we kind of emerge out of COVID and get to the other side of this, you know, everything is back to being seen in favor. There really was very little distress. You know, in this report I was reading, there was a two to three week window at the beginning of COVID that there was true distress in the public markets and that's because things happen by the second. 
But when you look at the the private markets, we never really got any. Of course, there was some, but we never got what we were expecting. And now you see cap rate compression of 75 to 150 basis points for what they're saying is in favor property types from pre-pandemic levels. And a lot of that is, again, an abundance of capital chasing multi-industrial, you know, data, data storage, you know, the, again, quote unquote, in favor asset classes, single family, things of that nature. So you have lower debt prices, but you have a lot more capital and a lot more equity trying to get in. So, you know, things are, are certainly better. Debt pricing across the board is lower than pre-pandemic levels for in favor assets. But that is quickly changing to all assets, like I said. Uh, prop tech VC funding is at all-time highs by a long by a long shot. And so what's good when you see here is these are the companies that are going to make us uh, able to operate more efficiently, whether at the company opco level or help properties operate better or help properties, you know, have better energy management. I mean, across the board, the more money that goes into innovating for real estate, the, the better it is. It, these are also solutions on how to build better affordable housing, how to build housing quicker. You know, I think you'll see because of the lack of labor and things of that nature, you'll see a lot more of this kind of modular stuff getting built in a factory and delivered on site. You know, all the the pains and challenges we're experiencing right now. You know, again, what's great about America, if left to the entrepreneur, will be solved somehow. We can't sit here today and exactly understand how that'll be. But there's a lot of pressure to come up with, you know, a lot of alternatives. Housing's at an all-time high, multi-families at an all-time high to rent an apartment. And again, getting, you know, housing built is at an all-time slow and low. And so something's going to have to give. And I would rather leave it up to the entrepreneurs getting VC funding than the government to figure that out. I think we could all agree on that. On just kind of migration and what we're seeing, some of this, none of this is, I think, anything shocking to anybody. But the highest population inflows in the country are through the Sun Belt and the Mountain West regions. And those are folks coming from the coastal kind of gateway cities. You know, interestingly enough, this isn't a, I don't know what this means because I actually think that the the urban environments are going to attract people back once we get through COVID. There's just a lot of benefits to being in an urban environment. But certainly the world, you know, these urban environments have been exposed, especially if they have, you know, kind of high tax rates and things of that nature. So there, there's a lot to be, the verdict is, there's a lot to be determined on whether these suburban, more sunbelt, less populated areas will stick forever. And I think it, it's it's a lot more than that. So what you read in the headlines, at least I read, is like this is an income tax thing. Nobody that I've talked to that's moved here from the coasts to Texas, when I ask them why they're here, is it's a property tax thing. Now, at the business level, sure. And I'm not saying it doesn't, it isn't um, a strong consideration. But a lot of this is the cost of living you know, the weather is pretty good. They're very pro-business environment. And ultimately, again, my opinion, we're now entering a world of what freedoms do some states give you as an individual and as a citizen? And what freedoms do people not have in other states? And I think that's what we're really fighting over. I don't know if it's talked about enough, but when you talk to people, that's a big part of it. And so I think we're starting to see this war on city against city, government against government, which I think is actually healthy overall. There's now some competition. You know, all these legacy ways of doing things 
are being re-looked at again. And so when you know you ask a lot of folks why they're moving to these areas, a big component of it is the freedom perspective. People are buying into freedom that they aren't getting elsewhere. Then you layer on they're being taxed more elsewhere. We might not have the best weather, but we're also very pro-business. You can really start to see how this is a movement that is very sticky. If you've if you've enjoyed the freedoms that you're getting at you know cities and markets throughout the Sun Belt, it might be hard to want to go back to a place that has less freedoms. And this isn't you know some dumb Texan talking about freedom, but I would say the most of the people that I talk to, and I ask people every chance I get when they are moving here, you know, why are you here? Are you staying? A lot of it immediately goes to that part of the conversation. Of course, the cost of living is great. The weather ain't, isn't bad, pro-business, and you get to keep more of your income because of taxes. But that's a big part of it. So, you know, again, take with it what you will. Will freedom continue to become something that people really want? And my guess is yes. And it's why I think the Sun Belt and the Mountain West will continue to do very well. And, you know, again, we'll see. Austin, Dallas, and Houston are the are leading the U.S. in net migration since 2010. On an occupancy basis, the most stable cities over the last five quarters were Nashville, Salt Lake City, Raleigh, Charlotte, Dallas, Miami, Austin, Houston, and Atlanta. And the most unstable over the last five quarters were D.C., New York, Boston, Seattle, and San Francisco. To put it in perspective, Nashville over the last five quarters is down uh, 0.1% overall. San Francisco is down 12.8%, and this is on an occupancy. Market liquidity, the most liquid market in the country, is none other than Dallas-Fort Worth at $27 billion, previously at the fifth most liquid. And this is based on transaction volume in the major asset types. New York actually came in at number 10 this year, down 50%. And it has never not been number one in almost 30 years. So we'll see what happens. Again, I think New York's going to come roaring back. It's it's such an important part of the country. But for the first time in over 30 years, New York was not number one. Just the ranking in most liquid markets in the country were Dallas, then Atlanta, LA, Boston, Phoenix, DC, Seattle, Denver, Houston, and then New York. So I just thought that was interesting. Cost to construct, it's nearly double the cost to build anything right now that it even was in 07 and 08. Inflation is running. There's no doubt about it. There's really no end in sight. You have this perfect storm of material costs going up, a labor shortage, low interest rates driving you know land prices and everything else. The cost to construct right now is very, very high. I don't know what that means for the future. It's just very high right now. You know, one thing I thought was interesting. So when you look at the net profits interest of a deal, so if you own a deal for five years and you sell it and you're calculating the total income or net profit that that deal produced, it came from either two sources, income or capital appreciation. So again, you have a building. If 25% of the profits generated over the life of that investment came from the cash flows that you received while owning it, then 75% of the profit must have come from appreciation. Right now, two-thirds of the net profit interest in most assets are coming from capital appreciation, meaning one-third is coming from you know, income appreciation. The last time that was that we were at two-thirds, capital appreciation as a percentage of NPI or net profits interest was in 2007. 
Now you might think, oh shit, it's, you know, we're back to 07. Yes, but we're also seeing a lot of things happen with inflation. We're seeing certain asset classes get more attention than others. We're seeing record level, you know, borrowing rates. So the verdict's out. But the last time we were at two thirds and two thirds was in 07. Good news is industry leverage is down. So overall, the average asset is levered, you know, 59% loan to value. In 2007, we were at 69% loan to value. So, you know, one of the things I've said a lot over the last 10 years is the lending standards have really held up. Yes, there's a lot of lending going on, but a lot of the bogus lending practices that you saw in 07, 08, you're not really seeing this time around. Lenders have stayed true for the most part to some pretty strict rules. Now, you can always make a case that, you know, again, we're, it's probably a little less stringent today than it was five years ago and certainly five years before that. But I think lenders overall have done a good job of kind of reining it in and making uh, loans that, that make sense and not just to feed some CMBS machine up in Wall Street, you know, that kind of led the last downturn. So, all right, I just did a lot of talking covered a lot there. Capital markets, industrial office, population flows. I'm not making any predictions on 2022. This is just the data that that was most interesting me in recent times. We'll see how it all shakes out. If I got something wrong, reach out to me. I tried to pull from the most credible sources I could. Thank you all so much for continuing to join me and I'll see you next week. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.